All right, hello and welcome back to the Basic Bible Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Thompson. Thanks for joining us once again. We are in week seven of our series on the attributes of God. We've been following A.W. Pink's book on this topic. And joining us today, a special guest, one who wants to bring grace to you, but at the same time is a pyromaniac who is too wretched for radio, the one and only Phil Johnson. Phil, welcome to our podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Kevin. Good to be here. And so for those of you who don't know uh, Phil Johnson, he is, I, I say this tongue-in-cheek, the executive director of Grace to You, that's uh, John MacArthur's ministry, the elder and, uh, an elder and pastor at Grace Community Church, editor of uh, all of John MacArthur's works. And so uh, we are just uh, blessed by your ministry, and really, again, thanks for, for taking the time for us. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, this is actually, I think this is the second time uh, you and I have talked via Skype. The first time, I don't know if you remember it was years ago. This is just when uh, Rob Bell's book came out, Love Wins. Oh, yeah. You Skyped into my classroom to talk about that, my theology class, and you and I were actually wearing the same thing uh, at that time, although you're a little lighter than you were then. Um, I'm about the same, but we looked very similar. We've got graying hair, at least in the beard area, goatee, and we were both wearing blue sweater vests. So yeah. people are asking me if we were related or if that's your brother, is that your twin? But anyway, uh, we're <laughs> talking about immutability. And so uh, that's not something that a lot of people talk about. That's not something you hear from the pulpit very often. So, Phil, uh, clue us in. What do we mean by immutability? Well, it's a simple uh, concept. It means that God doesn't change mm-hmm. and, and nothing about him changes, which is very, as I said, simple concept in the sense that it's easy to state what that means. It just means that God is eternally unchanging. It's not a simple concept to to grasp with the human mind, because yeah. everything we know changes. I mean, right. even time itself has this inexorable march towards the future, and so everything changes. As one of the philosophers that said that, uh, you know, he pointed out a river and said, that's not the same river that was here yesterday. It's yeah. all different water. And that's true of everything. Everything in this world changes. Everything in this world decays. Jesus said everything in this world will ultimately be eaten by moth and rust, and it will corrupt. And yet, God doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. He's not a man that he should lie, nor is the son of man that he should change his mind. So Scripture is very clear about the. Right unchanging nature of God, but try to picture that in your mind, and you are going to run into some serious questions and some great difficulties when it comes to trying to fathom that with the human brain. Yeah, the, the, the very concept is is foreign to us as human beings. As you said, all of our life is lived moment by moment by moment by moment, a linear series of events. Uh, even even what I just said now has changed. Life has changed. Our, our whole lives are about change. But God is that one, that one constant. Pink says in, in his book, God is perpetually the same, subject to no change in his being, in attributes, or determination. Uh, Jim Boyce, in his, uh, in his book, Foundation of the Christian Faith, said the immutability of God means that God will always be sovereign, always be holy, and always be omniscient. And, and that kind of just blows my mind that in contrast to man, God is that one constant, so what does that what does that look like for us? How how can we begin to even tackle that issue in our mind? Yeah. Well, as I said, everything in our experience changes. Everything. 
So there's nothing you can compare it to. There's nothing you can say, well, it's like this. And so all you can do is say, it's not like that. It's not like anything we know. And built into the concept is the idea of, uh, you know, divine omniscience, for example. If God is unchanging, he, he doesn't change, that means he's not learning anything. He's not discovering anything. He knows already. Scripture says he knows the end from the beginning, meaning he understands the full outcome of everything in the end. He understood that from the beginning. There's nothing that happens that takes God by surprise or causes him to change his mind. And even though scripture occasionally accommodates to human language and says things like, you know, God God was sorry he ever made man in Genesis 6 and, and in the book of Jonah, uh, he, he, he repented uh, and changed his mind on whether he yeah. would destroy Nineveh. And all. We, we know from the preponderance of what scripture teaches that God doesn't change. He didn't change his mind. He simply... Scripture is simply explaining the 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 outcome of of these circumstances under the sovereign hand of God in language that we can grasp. It's the same kind of language that Scripture uses when it speaks of the hand of God or the eyes of God. We know God is a spirit, and a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, so God doesn't have a literal hand. But Scripture uses uh, language that is accommodated to our human expressions and and yet expects us, God himself expects us to understand that those are figures of speech that God, uh, Scripture says emphatically, cannot change, does not change. He's not a man that he should change, even his mind. And what I think is maybe the most difficult subset of that doctrine is divine impassibility, meaning yeah. that not only does God not change his mind, he doesn't change his mood. Yeah. So that when scripture says the Lord became angry or, you know, language like that, we're not to think that God has mood swings, that right. something set off a temper tantrum in God, that something outside his control hurt him or changed his, his mood. That's not the case at all. It's simply that in his dealings with us, sometimes... His wrath comes more to the forefront, and sometimes his his grace and compassion comes more to the forefront. But it's not in response to what he sees happening. It's because those are all attributes of God that he puts on display at various times. He's not changing. He's, you know, it's, it's the way we see him that changes, but we're not to think that this reflects some kind of actual change in God himself. And that, that's a very difficult concept. I've taught on the impassibility of God, the, the fact that God does not have mood swings. And every time I even touch on that subject, it raises a host of questions in people's minds. But, but I thought God, you know, got angry or, or whatever. It's very, very clear that that's not the case. When we talk about God's wrath or God's compassion or, or, or God's love, we, we, we often view that just in, in, in the prism of our own experience. Because when I think about me getting angry, me being wrathful, I fly off the handle. I lose control. And so, therefore, I would do things I normally wouldn't do, perhaps, that would drive me into a more of an uh, emotional state or even a sinful state. Or if I'm in love with someone, I might do something or feel something I normally wouldn't. But right. that's not the case with God. So when God's talking right. about his anger, his love, it's not something that's out of control or something dragging him to an extreme. That's right. It, it, the Lord's 
uh, affections have a certain relationship to human emotions, yeah. but it's not emotion in the sense that m- my emotions are triggered by things outside my control. You can, you can make me angry, you know, turn the fire hose on me or something, and that's going to make me angry. Uh, God doesn't, doesn't react like that. His, his affections, what he displays, his wrath and his love and his mercy and his long-suffering, all of these are eternally unchanging attributes of God uh, that he displays in different ways at different times, but it, it's not that there's a change in him. So uh, it, it's probably not, it's not the best to refer to those as passions or emotions. They're there, uh, I think it was R.L. Dabney, the the Presbyterian theologian, who said it, it's better to think of God's affections as active principles, not hmm. passive responses, but active principles. He's utterly in control at all times, and he chooses sovereignly to display whichever change in him. I pray. My my goal is to change the heart of God. And I, I, I listen to that. I think, well, if God is perfect, why would I want Him to change? Right, um, it, but we look at passages such as in Genesis, both Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like Abraham and God are almost bargaining about uh, the destruction of the city. Well, God, if if I just found ten ten people that would uh, repent and, and turn toward you, would you destroy the city? And no, no, no. So, is God, in a sense, how do we explain that passage in light of in light of this? Uh, it's just like the anthropomorphic expressions. God is dealing with us at a level that we can understand. He yeah. he speaks to us as uh, like you would to a a, a baby. You, you 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 don't speak the same way to an infant that you speak to an adult. You use baby talk. You yeah. use simple words. You use little concepts that you know they can grasp. And uh, I, I think it's fair to look at God's dealings with humanity in a similar light that he often accommodates truths to language that we grasp, it's it's generally very clear when he does this. Uh, you know, we know a- any sentient person who really studies Scripture would know from the full context of Scripture that when Scripture talks about the hand of God, it's not a literal, yeah. you know, five-fingered uh, uh, part of his body. He doesn't have a body. God's a spirit, and a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, Scripture says. So, uh we know that Scripture uses language to speak about God in terms that are familiar to us and that we are not to think that he is just like us. He's not. Uh, and so what's clear in Scripture should govern those things that are hard to understand. And one of the things that's very clear is that, in fact, you said it You said it in a way that I'd almost turn backwards and make the same point. You said, if God is perfect, we, we, why would we pray that he should change? The fact is, if God changes, then by definition, he's not perfect. Right. Because if you're perfect, you can't get any better. That's what perfect yeah. means. You're the best it could possibly be. So you can't get any better. So any change would have to be for the worse. And God is not going to change for the worse. So the fact that he is perfect is the proof that he's immutable. Hmm. And uh, if he's immutable, then... He can't be changing his mind. He wouldn't be changing his mind. He wouldn't need to change his mind. He's not learning anything new. He's not He's not uh, sub- subject to involuntary mood swings. So right. h- how do you think about these things? It's a, it's a very difficult 
concept. A friend of mine, James Dolezal, has written a couple of books on this subject that are the very best treatments I've ever seen of this subject. And, and timely, too, because this idea of divine impassibility in particular, the idea that God doesn't have mood swings, he doesn't change his, his uh, he, he doesn't have emotional ups and downs and that sort of thing. That's an idea that's greatly under attack today. Uh, and I think yeah. even, even someone whose theology I generally would respect, although there's some major areas we disagree, would be Wayne Grudem. Wayne right. Grudem is a capable theologian, and yet in his systematic theology, he gives a half a paragraph, as I recall, it might even be in a footnote, to the idea of divine impassibility, and he basically just brushes it off and says, yeah, we don't believe this. Yeah. Because, and I think that stems from his charismatic notion that, you know, the the heavy expression of emotion and all of that that goes with charismatic doctrine uh, conditions him to think that God is like that, that God God himself must have these ups and downs or whatever. So he just eliminates the idea of divine impassibility. And I meet more and more people today who say, yeah, we don't believe in the impassibility of God. But it is it is a point that's made in all of the classic Reformed confessions of faith. The Westminster Confession says, for example, that God is without body, parts, or passions. Yeah. So in in a simple statement like that, it infirm it affirms the simplicity of God, that He's not He's not constructed from parts. He's simple. And it and the immutability of God, that He He uh, the impassibility of God, that He He isn't subject to passions and mood swings. And uh, the uh, invisibility, the, the, the spiritual nature of God, that he, he doesn't have a body. Mm. And all of those are pillars in what we would call classic theism, the, the classical notion of God. And pretty much all of them have been under attack in one way or another in recent years. It's kind of a sad thing to see even some of our top theologians who seem not particularly well-versed in classic theism, the, the the historic Christian understanding of God, which starts, of course, with the Trinity. And as you know, the doctrine of the Trinity has been subject to people who want to redefine it and rework it right, just right. in the past four or five years. Yeah, and so, that's, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I think it's a great concern that, and, and a good thing that you're, you're going back to studying the, um, the attributes of God because that that sort of forces us to take a hard look at classic theism. Why have the confessions formulated their doctrine of God the way they have? And should we just do away with those things thoughtlessly? thoughtlessly? Should we just flippantly, in a footnote, do away with the doctrine of divine impassibility? I think that's bad theology, frankly. Right. And that's, I have to admit, just, just I hope you can forgive me, but in a systematic class, uh, theology class I teach on the high school level. We do use Grudem's uh, Bible doctrine, and he does just within a few sentences basically erase this whole thing. Doesn't give it uh, much thought at all. But I, I'm there to correct some of that. Yeah. Now, to, to be fair, I I I think I think Grudem would he he actually would affirm the immutability of God. It, it's just he has a notion of divine immutability that somehow doesn't incorporate the principle of impassibility. Right. Which is a, a def- I would say, a defective understanding of what it means to have an immutable God. Well, unfortunately, that is where our interview with Phil Johnson cuts off. Unfortunately, as we are recording this, 
Suddenly, at this point, I got a little message saying nothing was recording, but it looked like it was, so I kind of ignored that message. I really shouldn't have ignored that message. Oh well, uh, I want to thank Phil for joining us. I think we got a, a good interview in, but I still wanted to end with a segment we always end with, and that's recommended resources or uh, books that can lead you into a deeper study. And he mentioned already in the interview, mentioned again during this piece, about the book All That Is God, All That Is in God, Evangelical Theology and the Challenge of Classic Christian Theism. That's by James Dozeal. Uh and I, I recommend that book as well. I've read that book, and he recommends that. Also, the book Bound Only Once by Doug Wilson. This book actually about open theism, but Phil Johnson actually writes a chapter in there about the idea of divine impassibility, which is one of the topics, as you know, that we just covered. So he also put that on his blog, uh, God Without Mood Swings, um, and I'll have a link to that as well. And you can check out Phil's blog, Pyromaniacs. And if you're if you're a Reformed Baptist type or Reformed John MacArthur-ish type, you've, you've, you've read Pyromaniacs before, and Phil's taken kind of a couple of years off, and now he's back writing on uh, various topics, so you want to check out Pyromaniacs, we'll, we'll include a link to that on our website as well. And then we got into a whole conversation about uh, the Cubs, Phil's a big Cubs fan, and the Cubs had just uh, dropped out, uh, the, the Brewers had beaten them, and we're talking about the possibility of the Red Sox winning, and now, lo and behold, we were prophets, the Red Sox did win the World Series, I'm a happy guy, and I hope you are as well, but anyway, so uh, we also want to recommend, throw the book, I forgot, uh, of course, A.W. Pink's The Attributes of God, that's the book that we're using through this entire study about the attributes of God. Now next week, we're going to be talking about the holiness of God, and that's we're going to be joined by a professor out of Westminster uh, Seminary out in California, J.B. Fesco. Uh, he's written a book on the topic of holiness, so we're going to be talking about that next week. But also next week, we're going to have a bonus episode about a book that uh, Ray Jewel and I both read. In fact, we got free copies, and we agreed to talk about it on our podcast. So that will also be next week. So we'll have two episodes next week. So you're going to want to join us back for that. So until then, don't forget to check out the website, www basicbiblepodcast.org we can find not only the recommended resources for this week but all the previous episodes you can catch up on any episodes that you've missed uh, we have a little blog there or at least a link to my blog we'll have a review of the book that we're going to be doing next week and don't forget to check us out on Twitter at Basic Bible Cast, also at Instagram the same handle so until next week have a great rest of your week mm-hmm.